The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Feels good to be here together tonight. Isn't it amazing how when you said, I'm assuming it's like this for you too, you know, even when our minds are all over the place, they go here, it goes there, it goes up, it goes down, that there's something essentially good or healing about that awareness of the mind doing its thing. I mean, it's like a, a nice description of the practice. One is the mind moves and we don't realize it's moving. In a way, we'd say we are the movement. We've identified with the movements of the mind. The mind thinks this, and there's a sense I'm thinking that. The mind worries about this over here, and there's a sense that's happening to me. But with mindfulness practice, I know this is just, these are just words, but there's a sense of stability, like uh, the stability of presence, you could say, and, or the space of the mind, like I mentioned in the set. And in that sense of presence, or the space of now, everything comes and goes. And it's like a paradigm flip from sort of being the movement of our minds, <clears throat> which is disturbing, you know, to be kind of moving about, clinging here, pushing away there, grasping over here, as we do most of the day, mind feels appropriately thrown about. And then, to some degree, when we're practicing, when we remember, whether it's our formal sitting time or out in the world, there's a sense everything's moving, but it's okay. Ajahn Chah, one of the great Thai meditation masters from the last century, had this beautiful image of still flowing water. And he used it quite a bit, and he'd say, have you seen still flowing water? And he'd go, of course not. <laughs> but that's it. And he's using it as a simile or a metaphor for the mind, or for our experience, where there's something still and there's something moving. And you can just use that image as you're practicing, as you're sitting, as you're going about your day. In the midst of the swirl, is there some sense of stillness or presence or space? And somehow the two can cohabitate. They don't contradict each other. You know, we can have an, a life that isn't working, for example, living in a world that also isn't working, and there be this sense of space or stillness or peace even. I think peace is a good word too. So I've been talking about patience as a particular theme the last couple of weeks, probably will for another week or two. Just a, just a way to, another way to think about and to hold like a container using the concept of patience, for example, as a container for our spiritual path. It's like there's many ways to do this, but one of the ways we can better and better understand this path that sometimes we call the path of awakening, mindfulness, path of awareness, it's like when we take up a particular practice theme like patience, then instead of thinking, oh, I'm practicing mindfulness or awareness, for a while we, we hold, okay, it's, it's just about being patient. Or, you know, another month we might take up, like we did, the practice of truthfulness, or the practice of renunciation, or letting go, or generosity. So there are many different themes that better help illuminate this path toward freedom, as opposed to a path toward stress, and tension, and reactivity, and craving, and fear, and neediness. So there's a path towards release, and a path towards the opposite of release, a life of weight, and pain, and difficulty. 
And so patience is a particular theme. You know, the first thing we need to do is kind of unpack it as a theme. And so the first week I just mentioned, you know, we don't want to get stuck with patience. You know, typically, the first thought is patience is a really receptive quality. Okay, just do what you're going to do. You know, it's like we say that to life. Just do what you're going to do. Go ahead, take what you're going to take. Tell me about, I mean, maybe there's some elements of patience involved in yielding. But the yielding and the assertiveness, they really go hand in hand. If we're unpacking it as a wholesome quality of mind, patience, then we want to understand it both as an assertive force and a receptive. And of course, sometimes they're not necessarily different. In other words, sometimes assertiveness is really a sign of weakness. And sometimes yielding is a sign of weakness. Or we, another way to say that is sometimes asserting, pushing, is a sign of ignorance. It's a sign of not being clear about what's going on. And sometimes retreating or being receptive or yielding is also a sign of ignorance or not understanding how it is. So patience is a, a kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's an invitation to understand or an invitation to see more clearly how it is. That's what patience is. And sometimes, you know, it will look receptive, but when we really look at the receptivity, the yielding, we'll see there's a real fearlessness in just letting things be. And sometimes patience will feel like a real strength a real power. But also that power, it's coming from the moment itself. It's not a me trying to save myself kind of power. So whether, you know, in a moment the expression of patience looks assertive or looks receptive, like staying put can look assertive. I'm not moving. I'm not yielding. That can be a form of patience, just like yielding can be a form of patience. But what we want to see about the patience is it has an organic quality. It's like it's arising from the connection with the present moment. Otherwise, it's an imitation, like I'm trying to be patient. My mom taught me to be patient. My kindergarten teacher tried to teach us to be patient. So I'm going to be patient. But that's a different, sort of a different approach to patience. It's like a should. So that, the second week I talked about, um, the talk was about how patience really is about balance and alignment with the conditions in the moment. And so the alignment is not to get thrown off by your impulse to push or impulse to yield. Because, like I just mentioned, we want the assertiveness and the receptivity, we want that to come out of our connection, the being present, being connected, sort of letting our response to whatever particular moment, whether it's a moment in meditation or a moment out in the world, to really let it be born from being connected in the moment. And we know this. I mean... It's almost common sense that, you know, strategies, you know, anything that we, whenever we approach life or meditation with sort of a, a superficial strategy, okay, I'm going to calm down or I'm going to do this with my mind. You know, we generally get beat up <laughs> whether we're doing it in life. You know, I'm going to apply this strategy to my intimate relationship or I'm going to apply this strategy to my job. I mean, the strategy that really works, I mean, this is really the path, is the strategy is like we let go of all the specific strategies and we just have one, which is to connect or to be mindful or to be patient. The response then comes out of that. It's like that's the only strategy we trust, to connect. And so we bring this balance, like we're not in favor. We don't think the moment, we don't assume the moment is asking for us to yield or be receptive. We don't assume the moment is asking us to be the brave warrior. We just show up with that balanced mind 
that integrity. Like, okay, it's like this. And the only real question, the only real strategy is, what is there that I'm not already knowing or feeling or seeing in this moment? So there's a kind of humility, just a basic assumption that although we may assume we're connected, we're mindful, we just practice as if there's more here. There's a sense of awe or wonder or interest. But what, what's really happening? Whether we're just knowing the breath as it's coming in or out or hearing sounds or feeling sensations in the body. And so with that integrity, that balance of mind, that intention to connect, which is what we can call patience in this context at least, it's like knocking on a door that sometimes opens. Like, you know, this experience probably, some of you have been practicing for a while, where you're with the breath or you're with, more generally, the predominant sensations in the body or hearing, maybe just the background sound, no particular sound, but just sounds together. And there's a sense, a continuity of being present. And this is what I mean by knocking on the door. And it's like, at first, what appears, because the mind is still caught in its ideas, it's as if the mind is whispering to itself, oh, this is just the ordinary experience of breathing, or this is just the ordinary experience of feeling the body, or hearing sounds. But there's some real commitment, some real persistence to the opening, to the being interested, to the showing up, moment by moment, being present. It's like a door opens, and the moment transforms. It's the same, but it isn't really the same. And it's like, instead of the experience, in a sense, coming out of our concepts, the experience is, the, the knowing is temporarily, momentarily free. Not that there aren't concepts or ideas, but they're not exerting a distorting influence. They're not corrupting the experience. Like we can be, you know, sitting in the Mall of America or hanging out in a park, just watching people come and go, sitting by one of the lakes. And you know how it is. Sometimes when people are coming and going, it's like we don't even realize it, but even when we're mindful, even when we're trying to be mindful, we'll notice everybody that goes by, we define. We just, the mind just immediately interprets, so oh, this person must be this way or that way. Not that we're even conscious of it. But we're evaluating, we're deciding whether we like or dislike, attracted or not attracted, like their clothes or don't like their clothes. You know, we have some opinion. And if we notice, we'll notice, well, oh, that's a weight. It's exhausting for the mind to have to do that over and over again. It's like it's hard even now in a context of being at ComCon, it's hard not to, when you're looking around the room, it's hard not to evaluate people not to have opinions about them. But we know we can do that. It's not as easy with people as it is with, you know, just looking at trees or just looking at the floor in front of us or just knowing the breath coming in and out. The habit of congealing and defining and having opinions is much stronger when we're hearing language or seeing people or seeing objects that we have a sense belong to me or belong to somebody else. Which is why, of course, people often practice in natural settings or with their eyes closed. But this is really the training. This is how we, you know, knock and then go beyond that door. And it's, it's really the point I wanted to make tonight in terms of the practice of patience is that there's a real joy. Patience isn't some dull and dreary thing. I read part of this passage last week from Sherrod Salzberg's book, A Heart as Wide as the World. And she has a, a chapter called The Presence of Patience. I'll just reread a couple sentences from this little chapter. Patience is not dour, and it is not unhappy. It is a genuine connection with whatever is happening right now. And then skipping some. Patience is a steadfast strength that we apply to each moment. It does not imply a sense of succumbing to, a complacent giving up, or even an endless standing by. 
Patience does not mean being enslaved by the moment, nor does it mean that we must accept whatever comes without ever taking action to change things. If the moment requires taking some kind of relevant action, we must do so. What is most important is the way in which we take action. Patience is actually quite simple. It means a full and open connection to the moment, a connection that involves tremendous integrity. So this is the thing. This is why mindfulness is such a transforming practice. Even mindfulness of the breath or mindfulness of the ordinary sensations like the pain in the knee or the pain in the back or sounds or just the general restlessness or the general sleepiness of the body and mind. The reason it's so transforming is that it reveals something. Like when we have the inclination, this wholesome inclination to open, to connect, there's this shift. Now, in a sense, I mean, this again, it's hard to capture it in words, but in a sense, the heart, this essential heart, this essential peace or freedom is getting grounded or caught up in the particular objects of the moment, in all that movement that I talked about earlier. Thoughts coming and going, sensations coming and going, life experience coming and going. And, and it's as if what's essential, like the essential freedom, out of habit is attaching, clinging, grasping on to these ephemeral movements of the moment, the movement of thought, the movement of emotion, the movement of sound, the movement of this and that, sensation. But the more we connect, the more we can't follow any movement. It's like uh, when you're watching, when you're lying down, at least this is the image I'm having right now, when you're lying down on the grass and birds fly by, maybe you remember a time in your life seeing birds flitter by or leaves moving. If your mind tries to capture particular movements, it has to forget everything else in a sense. In, in mo for a few moments, like you're watching a few birds fly across your visual uh, field, the mind fixes on the birds. And there's a particular experience. But when there's a soft gaze and there's still the activity, leaves are fluttering by or birds are flying by, something like that, clouds are floating by, but the mind isn't fixing on anything in particular. It's a different sense. We could say that last experience, there's more of a sense of space, the space in which the birds are flying by or the leaves are falling through or the clouds are floating by. And in the previous, in the first description, the mind is connecting, attaching with the particular movement. It's the same thing like if you're watching a nice little stream. You can have that same experience, you know. It's like, let's say things are floating on the stream, and you're kind of always doing this. Just like when you're watching people walk by, right? You know, it's like that. And it's like, you've got to keep going because you're going to miss somebody. Or you can just, if this is really hard, like I said before, with people. But just to kind of have a soft gaze and to not let your mind fixate on people, it's not so easy. It's easy with leaves and clouds and, you know, ripples of water. Not so easy with people. But that's the idea, that even with the flow of thoughts, we can have the same experience watching a stream as we can watching thoughts and emotions. When the mind learns how to be connecting with the moment as opposed to connecting with the objects in the moment. And this is the shift that comes with patience. When we're really, really patient, really open, there's a shift from the mind connecting with the objects to the mind opening to the moment, to the space of the moment, the stillness of the moment. Now, of course, we absolutely have to use the objects to do this. For example, lying on the grass looking up at the sky. Just because the sky is a bigger object doesn't mean it's not an object. You know, birds are objects. The sky is also an object. But we're using it as a way, we're sort of, it's like a stepping stone or a ladder, you know, to let go of grasping on concepts, we grasp the breath, so to speak. 
you know. And then as we're grasping the breath, feeling the breath, eventually we're grasping the whole body breathing. So instead of just here, it's like a more universal experience of the breath coming in, the breath going out. And then the more we get concentrated with that, there's a sense of stillness, a pervasive stillness or calm or bliss even in the mind. We're still aware of the breath. We're still aware of all the other things, maybe in the background, sounds are in the background, the movement, sensations, the movement of sensations in the background. But, but it's as if the predominant experience is the experience of space or stillness or peace. And then in this space or peace, there's lots of things happening. But the mind's not fixating. It's almost like that stuff is just there in the background happening. The mind isn't having a problem with it. And what it's really taking as its object more and more is a sense of space or peace or stillness or presence. You know, no particular word is actually very useful. But the experience, I mean, the words just are pointing to a particular experience. In one way, one word that's particularly useful because it can be an important barometer in our practice is joy. Or I used the word earlier, bliss. Or another word you hear sometimes in Buddhist practice is rapture. The Pali word is pity. But there's a kind of buoyancy, both felt viscerally and mentally, a kind of brightness, a, a enlivening brightness of the heart, mind, and body, viscerally felt in the body, that coincides with this transition or this transformation from the mind that's fixated grasping objects, pushing and pulling, liking and disliking, to a mind slowly or maybe quickly transforming, recognizing or awakening to freedom or space or stillness or joy. And this is a, this particular kind of joy or, or freedom, it has the characteristic of not being located in any particular place in the field of experience. It's like the space of experience, the space of knowing, is equally that feeling of peace or ease or brightness, buoyancy. So it's nice to hear this because it helps us sort of climb that ladder, which isn't always easy. You know, when we first sit down, when the mind is still grasping objects, well, as soon as it feels the tension in the body, for example, it grasps it. Oh, I got a lot of tension in my knee. I got a lot of pain in my shoulders. I got a lot of things I got to do on my to-do list. You know, I got a lot of mistakes I made earlier in the day. And it grasps those objects. And because those objects are moving like everything, the mind, the whole system gets thrown about. And it's conflicted because this thing's moving, but they there's that interesting sound to listen to, and there's that pain in the knee, and then there's the thought, and then there's the judgment, I'm a bad meditator, and, there, and we get thrown about because the mind is in the habit of grasping, and it's got many objects to grasp, and as soon as we're in a quiet room, it's like even more overwhelming. I mean, when we're out in the world, it's like we're distracted by everything, and we don't realize how we're being tossed about. But you come in a quiet place with our busy, worldly minds, and then it really stands out. And it's easy to give up, you know, in that first 10 minutes or the first 10 years of practice. I mean, both, really. I'm not kidding. It's not just a joke. But it is every beginning of a sit or beginning of a retreat is hard for that reason. There's kind of a standing joke among people who do a lot of longer retreats that it takes a good three days to get through the hell realm. You know, basically dealing with the worldly mind, the mind that is usually operating through daily life, takes a good three days to sort of first few days just energetically crashing, you know, because you come into a quiet environment and then the whole system just crashes because all of a sudden we don't have all the stimuli keeping us like fear of losing our jobs or, you know, the charge we get from the caffeine and the charge we get from the news and the charge we get from being around attractive things and possibilities and and all of a sudden all that stimuli is gone and then we just crash and then we sort of after a good you know 15 to 30 hours you know we kind of are done crashing and then we feel lousy 
not because we crash, but we feel lousy because it's like the cumulative effect of having lived the life we've been living is there, and there's no distraction from it. And then after a while, after several days, there are some balance arises in the mind, usually, you know, until we start to think about the retreat ending, <laughs> which is usually two or three days before it ends, you know. <laughs> So usually there's a couple of days where the mind has moments of being in balance. And it's just more likely that we'll go through this door and we'll really have some insight that there is this essential freedom. And it doesn't depend on anything. It's just a matter of going through that door. And that door again is, you know, with patience, this is the theme, using patience, not being inclined to push not being inclined to retreat, but letting the pushing and the retreating or the asserting and the yielding come out of the moment. That's what balance is. Balance isn't being fixed and still. Balance is being nimble, letting the heart or mind kind of just roll with the moment, respond to the moment out of a deep, deep resonant connection or intimacy. That's really what allows for the transformation. It's like something blooms. It's as natural as a flower blooming. It really feels that way. It doesn't even feel personal, that enlivening quality that arises in practice. There's a beautiful couple lines from a card that I purchased a long time ago. There's a Buddhist practitioner who's also an artist out in, uh, I think, in Oregon. And I can't remember his name right now. Um, but he has a number of greeting cards. And one I just saw, it was interesting, I was going through some books that were for the library, and there was this card, the image from the card was on the cover of this book. And it's a bird singing flowers, so out of the beak of this drawing, it's like flowers are sort of being sent forth. And the bird is sitting on a tree without any leaves and sort of a winter background. And the caption reads, birds singing flower while, flowers while awaiting spring. And then the second line is, I think it's like, be happy while awaiting happiness. And this is a kind of another way to express this, this transformation that arises from patience, which is the happiness burst forth independent of the particular conditions. Doesn't matter that it's winter. Doesn't matter that we have pain in the knee doesn't matter even, this is important, it doesn't even matter that the mind is all over the place, the thinking mind is all over the place. We have a strong thought, this is again how the mind grasps, when our mind is all over the place, like we've got a lot of thoughts about some difficult experience we had during the day. And then what does the mind do? Instead of allowing itself to be intimate with the swirl of the thoughts, it grasps them. Oh, I can't practice because my mind's all over the place. And then, in fact, because we've grasped that thought, our mind will be all over the place. But if we simply relax, trusting patience, you know, be patient with the swirling mind, with the moving mind, with the swirl of sensation, with the swirl of sound, and everybody else caught up in their swirls, if we just let all that be, if we're patient with all of that, we'll sing flowers while awaiting, you know, no swirling in the mind. So we don't need to wait till the mind is perfect to feel joy, to feel enlivened by life. We don't have to wait till our life behaves itself to feel alive. We don't have to wait until we're perfect to be free. This is really important because in any spiritual trip you might get involved in, whether it's a Buddhist path of awakening or some other kind of spiritual path or practice, there's always going to be the tendency to idealize it. And out of that idealization, there's going to be a kind of stiffness and a tendency to want to imitate being perfect. So, you know, we idealize it, so we think there's something out there we're going to get to. And then we try to imitate it because we want to feel like we're further along than somebody else or something like that, or we're tired of being bad. Or, and sometimes we do. We, we idolize being bad. You know, well, we're never going to get there. But in any case, we get tight, which isn't the practice. The practice is connecting 
It's like being patient with the truth, not trying to make the truth different than it is. And so having an imperfect mind, whatever that might mean in a particular moment, isn't a problem. The only problem would be if the mind grasps the idea, I have an imperfect mind, and turns it into good or bad, you know. But if we just practice connecting with whatever's going on in the mind, whatever's going on in the body, whatever's going on around us, some beautiful transformation will be supported. And eventually, it will develop in our practice. So before I open it up, I want to share one poem and a couple thoughts about this poem. It's a poem by Pat Schneider that uh, one of our leaders, Linda Breitag, sent me a couple years ago. It's called The Patience of Ordinary Things. It is a kind, it is a kind of love, is it not, how the cup holds the tea, how the chair stands sturdy and foursquare, how the floor receives the bottom of shoes or toes, how soles of feet know where they're supposed to be. I've been thinking about the patience of ordinary things how clothes wait respectfully in closets, and soap dries quietly in the dish, and towels drink the wet from the skin of the back, and the lovely repetition of stairs. And what is more generous than a window? And I like that poem, if you get a sense, because it, it really is a way of seeing, you know, it kind of suggests a way of seeing or a way of connecting and going beyond the ordinary, sort of using the ordinary, the ordinariness of a foot or the ordinariness of a window, but not being stuck. Oh, it's an Anderson window. I wish I could, I wish I had the money to replace all my windows. You know, it's like, and then we think about all the cold air coming and we think about all the natural gas being burned and global warming. <laughs> And we suffer, you know, we get, the mind is completely entangled in that whole knot. But that's not the only way to experience the scene of a window. Or any object, any moment experience. And it's just a matter if the mind is being caught in the particular object, or if we're using objects, moments of experience, to go beyond, into into the space or the freedom, the essential freedom. And this is, you know, something that Buddha points to over and over again in all of the teachings in you know, many, many different ways. And one particular way that I love, many of you have heard this chant we do on Sunday mornings. It's called the Suffusion with the Divine Abidings. But it's a chant or it's a particular teaching the Buddha gave many times during his lifetime where he suggested that people generate feeling the quality of loving kindness, send it out to all beings in front of them, to the second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, above, below, all around, including to oneself. Then the closing passage for each of the four beautiful qualities of the heart, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, he would say, uh, he would suggest, or we should practice, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with any of these four beautiful qualities. But we could put patience in there too. Abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. So there's this sense of something beautiful being immeasurable. And it's here, it's available. And this is the door we open to something that's immeasurable, something that the mind can't grasp. As a metaphor, like, our mind can't grasp the space of this room even. I mean, we can define it by the walls, but we all know, I mean, it doesn't take much intellectual reflection to know that these walls do not contain space. Space, I mean, even as an intellectual concept, you know, our mind starts getting a little freaked out, like, yeah, what is space? <laughs> so this is just a metaphor for what is available in practice. We use objects to relax into with patience, to open up to, in order to go beyond them. So we don't open to the breath in order to become the world's expert on the in-breath or the out-breath. 
We open to the breath to go beyond the breath. But the path beyond the breath is the present moment. And it doesn't matter what it is. So we can use the breath. We can use the sound. We can use pain in the back. We can use anything. So I'll leave it here. And it be nice to hear from people what you've learned in your practice that you'd like to share with the group or questions from the talk or anything that seems relevant that comes to mind. And also, any lessons about impatience? We learn both ways from success and mistakes. Yeah, Tom. <clears throat> What's, um, I can think of a couple of days, a couple of times today, and, you know, lots of times if I want to go beyond today, where, um, you know, I've been like impatient. I mean, and I had that moment just, just after I've sort of like, snap at somebody or pushed a little too hard and to find that balance between like I mean we're meditators we're practicing equanimity and patience but I got kind of a I mean I, I got a job whatever but we're not chumps we're, but I don't think but what's what do you what do you do with yourself after it's like ah, wow really mm-hmm. you have to do that to go there and then it's like well it's not helpful to sit there and drill yourself. Yeah, 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 exactly. But then, what's the way to kind of get over it, think about it? Yeah. Love. You know, we have to to forgive and understand with compassion, of course. So you can even throw in that. I mean, that can be a mantra to use. Of course. Of course I screwed up. Of course the mind reacted a moment ago. You know, given the conditioning of the mind, just the way the mind's been set in motion, you know, of course it's going to react in these kind of situations. Of course it's going to be blinded by this, blinded by that. Of course this habit's going to arise. You know, now we're not like saying that we want to continue to do that, but we're understanding it. And we don't need to worry that by forgiving ourselves, somehow we're not going to try to be better or try to you know, avoid that mistake in the future. But like you suggested, there's nothing productive about hating yourself, and there's nothing productive about denying the mistake either. So we want to avoid those two extremes, denying that it is a mistake, um, or just distracting ourselves from it, or beating ourselves up. Neither help. They're both different aspects of suffering. Beating ourselves up is obvious why that's suffering. But denying it or distracting ourselves from mistakes, we may feel like we're avoiding pain because now we don't feel guilt because we're unaware that we made a mistake or we've forgotten it. But it takes a lot of work to be distracted. And in a way, we can consciously fool ourselves. But unconsciously, we know because we were there what we did. So the impact is there. So from the framework of the Buddhist teachings, it's better to make a conscious mistake than an unconscious mistake. There's, in a sense, more karmic weight, more unpleasant fruit coming our way when we're unconsciously making mistakes as opposed to consciously making mistakes. And the reason is, when we're unconsciously making mistakes, we're not learning anything. At least when we're consciously making mistakes, there's some immediate feedback that's already correcting the uh, conditioning of the mind. The guilt we feel, for example, the remorse we feel, is having an Im- making an impact on the mind. It's changing the conditioning of the mind. But if we're oblivious to the harm we're creating for ourselves or others, there's no corrective mechanism. What will have to happen is that having made that mistake in a blind way, it will tend to repeat itself. And then there's got to be a hope that someday, when it repeats itself, we will be mindful to some degree. So we'll feel the unpleasantness of that action, and that will initiate the correction. So yeah, compassion, forgiveness. And you can prompt it. You can invite it in. You know, ah, of course. It's not easy being a human being. Being a human being, being a conditioned human being, means there's a lot of momentum for the different patterns. And this is one of them. You know, this is one of those patterns with momentum. And uh, 
you know, this is how it is. Yeah, Monica. I was reflecting a while back you had talked about strategy, and um, that strategy kind of pulls you out of the moment. And I recognized after kind of hearing that that I tend to approach almost all moments with strategy, <laughs> and I caught myself doing that an awful lot. But now when he's asking what a mindful way of, of you know, when I catch myself doing something that's not skillful, um, I might like start beating myself up, but mostly I tend to go to strategy to try and figure out how not to repeat that again. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you have anything um, that might shed some light on maybe skillful strategy versus yeah. Yeah. skillful, or if you should just abandon skillful. No, no, no. Strategies are important, but what there's a transition, a gradual transition, which is we begin, like we start over time in practice, we just start connecting the dots and we get what it is about the strategies that work. And we start to see, oh, all the strategies that actually seem to work in my life have some element of being connected to things as they are in the moment. And then we just start distilling it. The strategy isn't so much about forgiving or being compassionate, it's about really connecting. So I could have responded to Tom by saying, just really connect, and you'll notice compassion and forgiveness arising. But the more we connect in a particular situation, the more we recognize how compassion and forgiveness come up out of that connection, the more we can take a shortcut in a way. It's like we're reading the situation, and we know already that right with the connection, forgiveness and compassion will come. So there's a certain like uh, participation where we're just reading the moment because we're not really disconnected. So it's almost like this is why wisdom is so seductive. We take wisdom personally, but it's not personal at all. Like our strategies aren't really our strategies. And it's more about shifting how you see a strategy. See the strategy being born out of the moment. So instead of telling yourself, now, oh, Marxists don't have strategies, instead say, Okay, I'll see. Do strategies get born? You know, when I'm present, will strategies arise in the mind? And they will. Unfortunately, often more than one strategy arises in the mind. So then we have to have a moment of just sort of sitting there, you know, as the strategies sort of express themselves in the mind before we actually jump on board. And we'll get a sense of which one is coming from a deeper connection from the moment and which one is just there because of habit, you know, like a run for the hills. That strategy often is there, you know, when anything's difficult. But it's not often the best strategy to jump on. But it's going to be there for a long time because when things are difficult, that habit has been practiced so many times, you know, ignoring, distracting, running, that it's going to keep coming up. Yeah, thanks for asking. That's a good question. Yeah, Anne. I find that there's this moments because you're talking about this moment, and that comes from being in a condition. And I'm I'm really new to this practice, so I find that there's this moment. One time, a few weeks ago, you also said, every now and then, you actually do need to like take yourself by the shoulders and pull your, you know, so stop yourself from Mm -hmm. if you notice you're about to react. And I find that there's like this moments where I have to do that because I'm just barely beginning to see that I'm about to go into a super conditioned response of, for example, being super impatient like with someone, mm-hmm. that the only thing I can do, because it's really hard to be like, I guess I'll just connect with this moment. But I'm like, I'm on the edge of knowing that that's what I want to do, but I just have to like keep my mouth shut. Yeah. Like force myself to keep my mouth shut, and like I find it really helpful to do that. And I don't, I haven't thought of it as a strategy so much as like this like a transition mm-hmm. from being really unconsciously reacting to getting a slightly more conscious. Yeah. I don't know if I have a question so much as it helps to give it some words. Like that. Yeah, and it clarifies too what Tom and Monica have been talking about. And, uh, and what I've been talking about, too, how probably in that situation, even though 
the voice telling you to react with impatience might have been louder, bigger, more colorful. The voice of wisdom pulling you back from the precipice was deeper, quieter, maybe more resonant. And it's really more about like learning how to listen to the different strategies that are arising in the moment, like to hit back or to restrain herself. And the practice really isn't about like a particular strategy. The practice is really about looking at all the strategies, all the impulses that are arising, and beginning to, to be able to discern which ones are, are being born from wisdom versus the ones that are just being born from ignorance or reactivity. And that's really our work as a practitioner, not to have the right strategy. Because literally, the strategies do get born. All the strategies are getting born. We think we have to do our personality, you know, moment by moment. We have to be ourselves. But actually, the force of our personality, the momentum of our personality, it knows how to do itself. Our job as somebody interested in not suffering is to be there with awareness and to be aware of the subtle arising of different strategies or different impulses and to very quickly in the moment discern the relative skillfulness or unskillfulness, superficiality of some, resonant, deep resonance of others. And then naturally, ones will be restrained and others will be sort of hopped on and will take them into action. Any other thoughts about this or other topics related to patients that come to mind? Got a couple minutes left. Yeah. what you're pointing to is a real, it's, it's true, which is the whole path works better the more calm we are. And so, you know, in terms of our daily life, it means that when there's a perfect storm and we're hungry and we're tired and we're getting sick and the boss is saying this to us and whatever, we spilled coffee on our favorite blouse or shirt, <laughs> you know, that's probably... Not gonna, it's not going to be easy to practice in that moment. But when we're in a quiet place, surrounded by other people who are really committed to practice, when we've been reminded of the basic instructions, it's easier. And in general, we want to develop a resonant calm that sort of protects us when the external world isn't supportive of it. And that way, what we do about that is we practice every day if we can. Because it does carry off, carry over into life, into daily life. Did you want to add to that? Is, is, is your brain slowing down? I mean, like, let's say someone loses a temper with me, and by the time I, it's all finished. I mean, it's done. Yeah. The, what's amazing, uh, and by the time I'm aware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know exactly what you're saying. Okay. And the 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 amazing thing is. The more calm, the more concentrated the mind, it's as if things slow down. Because the more there's that still presence, the more the mind is intuiting the space of the present moment versus being caught in the particulars, then it's as if things slow down. Because from that, that sort of ground of space, the mind is just, uh, it's bright, it's energized, and it's, it's in this neutral place. So it, it very quickly sees what's happening. It's just like if I'm asking you to think about a pink elephant, really hard about a pink elephant, and then and don't forget it, you know, and then ask you to do something else, it's not easy for you to do something else with your mind. And this is like when our mind's grasping, it can't really do anything else. But when the mind retreats to this potential state, which is really what mindfulness practice leads us to this the mind rests moment by moment it rests in its potential state it knows and rests it's like flashing back <clears throat> between knowing objects 
and resting. Right now, all we know is the grasping of objects. We, we're missing half of reality, so to speak. But the more that there's that resting, then its capacity to know present moment objects is exponentially greater. And so we, instead of just having somebody be mean to us and we react with anger, there's like a hundred mind moments in that whole thing. Every one of those mind moments is a moment to abandon an unskillful reaction and choose a skillful reaction. But if we're not mindful, if we haven't developed mindfulness in that quality of stillness or space, there's no space to notice the choice. And in a sense, there is no choice. We're just going to act out our, the strongest habit. So possible. Yeah. It's absolutely possible to move in this direction. And who knows where the nth degree is? You know, we have words like uh, full awakening, nibbana, to sort of stand for that nth degree. But it doesn't even matter if there's an nth degree. What matters is that it's pragmatic. You do a little, you get a little result. You do a lot, you get a lot of result. You do a whole bunch, you get a whole bunch of results. You know, so just the more you do, the, the greater the benefit. And the Buddha said as much. It's probably a good place to end. I'll just end with a quote that I saw today in a book that I really liked from a Jesuit priest. Enlightenment is absolute cooperation with the inevitable. <laughs> I'm not sure how it relates to what we've been talking about, but I'll leave it with us. So just take a moment and let go of the words. <clears throat> Just exploring patience here and now. And being inspired to open and go beyond <clears throat> the contracted, stressful states of mind. Not just for our own well-being, but for the well-being of all beings. So really open to this aspiration to live a life that supports peace and ease for our own heart and for all beings, without exception. Thanks again, everyone, for coming tonight. Always feels good to be together.